This is Tuesday Night Rheumatology, and tonight we're going to again present a highlight session of the Room Now Live meeting 2022, held in March of this year. Tonight, we're devoting the session to the pod that was titled Rheumatoid Arthritis Best Management. We have three fabulous speakers talking on on newer, better ways and new, newer thinking about rheumatoid arthritis. I think you're gonna enjoy this session. This is gonna be a highlight reel um, with excerpts taken from each of the three lectures. And then we'll have time at the end to uh, go over any questions you might have. I wanna to recommend to you that if you have questions throughout um, the presentation that you can use the Q&A button to ask questions that we will discuss. I want to acknowledge the sponsorship of Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, who sponsored the Room Now Live meeting, in particular this session on rheumatoid arthritis. Thank you, Pfizer, for doing that. Uh, because of you, this uh, educational session is possible. Um, and I want to remind you that we are going to continue to do these Tuesday night rheumatology sessions for two more weeks after this, and we'll get into that um, at the end of the lecture. So let's take down this particular slide, and then I'm going to um, share my screen with you with our first speaker. Okay, so our, our first speaker is uh, Janet Pope. Um, Janet Pope is well known to many of you. Uh, she is the, the professor of medicine at the um, Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry in uh, London, Ontario. Uh, Janet's a leader in the field of rheumatoid arthritis. I asked her to talk about drug cycling and switching, you know, should I stay or should I go? We're talking about staying with TNF inhibitors or changing to other MOAs. We're gonna jump right into her presentation where she's going to show you a number of cases and get some of your impressions on this issue. So ULAR guidelines as well say the same thing is once you start with uh, methotrexate and often it's in combination with glucocorticoids or sometimes double or triple therapy if you read the fine print of the ULAR guidelines, which are going to be revised and represented at ULAR this year. But basically they say in the phase two, if you're methotrexate inadequate responder, you don't meet targets, secondary loss of benefit, don't tolerate it, et cetera, then add a BioDMART or a JAK and then continue to treat to a target and do the same thing again. So there is no preference of what should be first line advanced therapy and then should you go within class or outside of class. So the first case, uh, and these are based loosely on true patients, but the hand x-rays are certainly my patients, or the hand uh, pictures. 34-year-old woman, active RA for 10 years, so she's 24, double positive, and she's now postpartum. And she was on uh, TNF during the whole pregnancy. She doesn't want to have any more kids, as after each one she's flared, so she's had three pregnancies, this is the third kid. And at first she was on triple therapy, because that's what we do in Canada. And she stopped breastfeeding. RA didn't settle with glucocorticoids, so she stayed on her TNF, sertralizumab pegol, the whole pregnancy. Um, because she's done breastfeeding and she's flaring, methotrexate was added back in, still not responding. She's tired with the new baby, her two other kids, um, and because of the active RA, and her mood is pretty low. So I'll let you uh, poll at any time and do the answers. So. Which drug would you choose in this patient with an inadequate response to TNF? 
Another TNF, she has done her kids, so she says. IL-6 inhibitor, abatacep, rituximab, JAK inhibitor, leflunamide, or you'd pick any of them except for leflunamide. So we're going to let a few more people vote, both here and uh, our people listening, and we'll see if we get some degree of answers, and the, the votes are going up. So really, there's nothing wrong in any of these uh, answers. Uh, there's some I would do more than others. Um, and we'll get here and see. We've got some votes still casting. So we'll see where we're at here on this and kind of look. Um, interesting. So it's almost like um, a dose response in the order I gave, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, so at least one in three right now are saying, oh, I'd go to another TNF. She did well. Um, Leflunamide, people aren't loving. People might go to Abitacept. Only one in six is going to a Jack. And IL-6 um, got voted low. And Rituximab's sort of um, starting the race now, a couple of things. So it just shows we don't have a clue what to do. And, I, and even what I would do in one day might be different in another. And I'm honest with patients that at this point in time, as uh, Professor Choi said, we, we, we need personalized medicine. We don't know who will respond to what. So pretty good voting here uh, and uh, no real consensus. Um, so I did discuss treatment options. And by the way, she could have chosen anything. And by the way, with personalized medicine, I often um, talk people into their decisions saying, well, you could choose this or that. I usually don't give five decisions or they don't choose. It's information overload. Um, so she is going to uh, avoid pregnancy. Uh, she said her husband was going to uh, have surgery uh, to avoid pregnancy in the future for her. So um, if she was thinking of uh, more kids, another TNF would probably make sense. I talked about rituximab. She's double seropositive. And if you were astute, you saw the MCPs were not only swollen, but some degree of subluxation on the dominant hand. And uh, we talked about a lot of things. So. Um, Here's what we could do. So this is TNF to TNF, obviously not in this patient, but um, these are mostly primary non-responders because they didn't meet a primary endpoint at 12 weeks of an ACR 20. So an ACR 20 is usually 50% improvement on joints or more. So the joints might be improving in this study or not. But I'm showing it because either TNF could be fine, but once you switch to the next TNF, look at that ACR 20. That ACR 20 is only about 20 some percent when you switch. And the ACR 70, um, don't ever tell a funder, but it's, uh, it's closer to zero. But again, most TNF patients are secondary loss of effect on why they switch. But that sort of sobered me on why I would go to TNF to TNF or why I wouldn't. Okay, next question. So when would you prefer switching from a TNF inhibitor to another TNF? Because one third of you said you're doing that. So consideration of pregnancy in the near future side effect from the first TNF, but excellent response. If that is all I can get access to, all the above, or both one and three. So um, I'll just go back for a second, let that poll go for a second. Um, okay, so you're casting votes fairly quickly. So some of you are saying, well, it's all of the above or any of the above because I already chose a TNF to TNF. So we'll see in a second uh, where you're at and uh, if this is going to change a bit. Okay, interestingly, so um, a lot of all of the above, eight out of 10 at least, and one out of six is saying side effect from the first but excellent clinical response. And there's no right or wrong answers here. It's what you think and what you'll do. 
Okay, so when would you consider switching to a different mechanism of action in RA after a TNF failure? Most failures are secondary loss of effect. Some are lack of tolerance, some are primary non-responders, but most are they did well and then over time lost benefit. So when would you consider switching a primary TNF non-responder Patient is using monotherapy, so I'm going to switch out of TNF to TNF. Almost always I would switch to something else, TNF then something else, all of the above, or one and two. So we'll see because again, um, uh, I think that if I asked this in Canada, we'd get slightly different answers than what we're going to get here, none of which are wrong or right. They're, they're all potentially uh, good answers. So primary non-responder, uh, one in three are saying, get out of there, or all of the above. All these reasons I'd move on. So in other words, I usually go TNF to another mechanism. Um, okay, so a lot of people are saying there's reasons like monotherapy, uh, primary non-responder would be some of the reasons. And again, it's all about access and experience, and there's a lot of data supporting whatever you do, and the guidelines support it. So this is a nice uh, investigator-led RCT out of France, and I think it didn't get as much play as it should have when it was published. It came into JAMA back in 2016. So the question was, your patient has RA, they're on a TNF inhibitor, and now you're going to do something else. So most are secondary loss of response, not intolerability, not primary non-response, although a few percent would be either of those. And 300 patients, and they were randomized to TNF to TNF, or TNF to other MOA. And the other MOAs were what you would have thought of back then. Tocilizumab, half of the ones that were randomized to other MOA did that. A third did rituximab, a third did abatacept, or a quarter for the other ones. The other ones went from one TNF to another, and you could choose what you wanted. You could go to tanercept to adalimumab, adalimumab to infleximab, whatever, sertralizumab to tanercept. You could just do what you wanted, but the data are super important. Look at week 12, cycling within a TNF. You get about the same moderate response but you get less good response. That's your green chunk at the top. And this is the same idea at week 12, 24, and 48. So you can get um, a response on whatever you do on average for patients, but if you want more people getting that good response, which I think we do, treating to a target, then you should go out of class. And I'll tell you, back in 2015, when it was first presented and then published um, thereafter, that did change my practice, where I was sort of TNF and just move on to something else. There's another reason as well. So efficacy, but durability of response that we'll talk about later. This is a systematic review. These aren't RCTs, though. A lot are just um, uh, registries. Um, so what they're saying is that drug retention favors going TNF to something else more than TNF to TNF for any of the reasons. Stopping because of safety or stopping because of inefficacy, again, most are secondary lack of response. So it's always favoring in these sorts of studies, get out of the class. Well, you would say, well, then why do the guidelines not support it? And it's because we don't know what to do and whom, and we can still get a good response no matter what we do in most of the patients. Okay, so, um, which drug or class of drugs you choose if you're not, um, if not in um, 
a, a low response after TNF-IR. My clinical pearl is almost anything we try next will have a blunted response. So sometimes we're a bit marketed to saying that's not the case, but in general, um, deep remission, ACR 70s, even DOS, low disease state in general is a bit better um, if you were not TNF exposed um, in RA. Once you're a TNF non-responder, it's a blunted response. And this is one of many slides that kind of give you the idea that your ACR uh, 2050 70 and the keystone rule go down about 10% post uh, TNF. So, bit of a blunted response. And you could say, oh, aha, I know some data that aren't like that. I'm just giving you average data here. We also know, and, and Jack wasn't chosen very high, and Abitasset was chosen a little bit higher. We also know that after TNF or BioDMARD inadequate response, head-to-head, -head, 300 per group, you're seeing in rheumatoid arthritis, Abitasset was inferior to upadacitinib. So if you look at a DOS of less than 2.6, which isn't remission, but it's a pretty low disease state, you can see, interestingly, in these hard-to-treat patients, half on UPA, 15 milligrams a day, achieve that response by uh, 24 weeks. And although abatacept does very well, it's uh, one in three, so a third. Okay, if we look at a CDI, which is a really tight one, a CDI of less than or equal to 2.8 would be one swollen, one tender, MD global of a half out of 10, like a half of a point, or, or, um, and patient global zero. That's how you would get that result, very tight. And again, you can see about one in five on UPA, 21%, and about one in six on Abitasset. And some of you might not have chosen it because of access, and some of you would have said, yes, but I'm worried about safety because the serious adverse events, not a primary outcome, were numerically a little bit higher on UPA than Abitacept. But again, I'm hopefully treating in that benefit of I want benefit, I want safety, I want access, and you have to weigh all that on each patient. The other thing is, this is old now, but this is from 2017, looking at a big population database, RA patients, and they're looking at persistence. If you keep changing your drugs, they cost the system more, because every time you change, you might not respond to the next one. So this is after TNF, and they're looking here, you have better pers persistence in every single database, including this large one, if you go out of class. And so that's the black, the dotted black is staying within class. And the big difference here is that you get persistence in half the patients, 48%, if they're on going from TNF to a different class, then if uh, you get it 40% persistence while you're following over uh, you know, a few years, two years there, but longer, you get only about 40% persistence TNF to TNF. And it's cost efficient, so they said. And this was published before Biosimilars, it's a US database, uh, so before they were widely used, or still not widely used in most areas in the US. So still cost efficient, they said, or more cost effective going out of class. Okay, let's do another case. 50-year-old woman, and again, these aren't her hands, but you can see how horrible this patient is. So it's a myth that we don't have damage in our patients, and it's not our Canadian healthcare system, it's just some people do damage. So 50-year-old woman, seropositive RA, eight years. 
She flared after four years of sustained remission on triple methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine. So the first thing we do when someone flares is, is it a blip or is it a sustained state? So she got IM or intramuscular glucocorticoids or both, or maybe if it's telemedicine, a short course of oral glucocorticoids. So she starts tofacitinib five milligrams twice a day. Fun fact, in Ontario, where I'm from, tofacitinib, we get the same access, same cost to the system as a biosimilar TNF. So we use lots of tofa. We got it approved almost the same time as you did in the US, but we get it at, uh, I'll call it a discounted price. Anyway, she was on tofacitinib, five milligrams twice a day with methotrexate, and she had a rapid deep response. So all is happy four years into her disease. However, after two years of TOFA plus methotrexate, she's flaring. Again, we say, are you flaring uh, or is it a new state? So we tried glucocorticoids, we asked about adherence, we can check the pharmacy records on um, electronic health records, and presumably she was taking her drugs because she was filling them. Okay, so she's gone triple, now she's gone methotrexate plus TOFA. So if an RA patient has secondary loss of effect from a jack, would you use, you can vote at any time, use another jack, switch to a bio-DMARD, so this is the other way around of what I told you on the first case, <clears throat> either depends on the reason why you're switching in past treatment, or I have no idea. So we'll see how many people are actually honest, because I don't know what to do, but that doesn't stop me ever from prescribing. I just tell them, you know, we got lots of options. What do you want to do? Here's what I think you should do kind of thing. Okay, so we're getting good votes coming in. So we shall see. Um, okay, so you're doing exactly what I kind of told you to consider doing going out of class. So at least almost 40% of you are saying, well, I'd switch to BioDMARD. She's uh, uh, TNF and other BioDMARD naive. Um, one in four or five is saying, I'll use one in four, I'll use a jack, do either. Uh, depends on the reason why you're switching and past treatment. It always depends on past treatment and it always depends on access. And 3% of you are totally honest. So there you go, and now we're kind of evening it up a little bit. Um, so uh, although I just told you what could be done in the first case, I'll tell you what we did do, but sometimes it's for various reasons. Uh, so she says, you know, I liked an oral med. I did really well on TOFA. It really helped my pain. Um, I'd like to try another oral. So the first thing I said is there are no randomized controlled trials. I have no clue if this is the right option, but I have it in the cupboard so we can get it pretty quickly. And we do have it. Uh, we have samples of pretty much everything that's um, on patent. And basically I said, um, if it doesn't work quite quickly in the next two to three months, then obviously we'll move on. So, interestingly, and this is my experience, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but she had, she was better quickly, and by three months she was back in remission. By two months she said she was, but I um, observed her joint count at three months. So just anecdotally, because that's all it is right now is anecdotal. So I don't see excellent results in all patients switching jack to jack, but the patients who have cycled through everything or who can't um, do uh, an injection or refuse to or don't want to, I've seen okay results. I don't know about retention, and I think it begs an RCT. So I don't know the right thing to do in a case like that. 
So what we do know, I'm just going to give you some data. So this is our site plus a large site in Toronto. We looked at retention of JAKs, um, and they were longer than biodemards, whether you adjust for line of therapy, adjust for disease duration, age, sex, gender, the amount of uh, drugs you've tried before. And it was um, better. It was um, obviously first-line therapy has better retention than second or third. But you can see that the differences are starting to split after 12 months. This is true on many registries, but not all. So there's um, a Canadian one of um, Ruma data, which is Quebec, combining data with the OBRI, Ontario, not showing this, showing equal retention, but they did not adjust for line of therapy. And again, you can see the differences here. That is not answering your question as well. What about the jack-to-jack -jack retention? So we're working on that. I have students working on that, but we don't have the data yet. The other thing we know is that in the jackpot trial, there is cycling jack-to-jack. -jack. That's sometimes because it's the only option left. You've tried all sorts of um, maybe one from every class, and now you're recycling drugs again, so you're going jack-to-jack. -jack. So um, the reasons for uh, stopping are often ineffectiveness, secondary loss of response as usual. Sometimes it's lack of tolerability or SAEs. And the reason for stopping the second when you're going jack to jack seemed to be lack of effect, um, not very often, but AEs a bit more often. Jack to biodemard, you can see on the far part there that the reason for um, going jack to biodemard, you're switching because of ineffectiveness or for AEs almost on equal amounts. So we don't know yet, and as I say, we need an RCT. However, in Australia, 40% of RA prescriptions on their big OPAL database, which is almost all the rheumatologists in Australia, 40% of their JAK scripts are JAK to JAK. So if you want to know answers over time, Australia should be doing a pragmatic trial. Um, so yeah, weird. So not every patient's getting a JAK. So about 30% of their scripts are a JAK in RA, but 40% of that 30% are jack to jack. So we will know more, but we need an RCT. Okay, folks, that was interesting. Um, uh, Janet covered a lot of ground. And I think that all of you are um, consistent in that um, rheumatologists we all love TNF inhibitors. And it certainly still seems to be a whole lot easier to choose a second and maybe even a third TNF inhibitor. Um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to not do that. Um, and I looked at the same data as she did and I came away with, you either need to be a one and done or a two and done. What does that mean? Um, there's very, very good data that says that if you want to know what to do after your first TNF inhibitor, just go to another MOA because that's always the right choice. Meaning that the data that shows that choosing a second TNF inhibitor is not always the right choice. In fact, it's always a lesser choice. Um, and again, I agree with Janet in that these are not great studies, but the data that is well done seems to consistently say it's better to go to another MOA. But yes, some people can safely go to a second TNF inhibitor if there was a secondary loss of efficacy, not a primary, but a secondary, or it was a toxicity issue. Three is inexcusable. So it could be one and done like me, 
or you could be a two and done where she showed you the data that you could switch from jack to jack. She didn't show you the data where you could switch from aisle six to aisle six, meaning you could stay within a class. You certainly do that with TNF inhibitors. You go TNF to TNF. The point being that two and done means you can use two within the same class, but then you need to move on to another MOA class in choosing therapy. Um, so I think that the data that she presented was instructive. I think it really does help us to make decisions about should I stay or should I go aligned from the clash. Um, and I think this is, uh, is helpful in going forward with uh, our best therapies. Um, I do want to remind you that we are also live streaming um, to our YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn channels for those who were unable to sign into this um, webinar uh, through Zoom. Uh, we are taking questions in the, in the Q&A box. Let's see, we got a few. Uh, Carter Thorne put up um, a reference from David Felsen about um, some of the inequalities seen in early biologic trials. This is a report from 2016, and that report did say that the doses that were used in the methotrexate comparative groups weren't necessarily the same. I think that might have been Carter's point. Um, uh, Stella Bard asked what the safest option in the setting of NAFLD or um, I, now you're going really rare with rupus cases. I mean, I don't think that that, I think that's a figment of our imagination. I don't think that either of those situations change anything. The ACR guideline on NAFLD is you can use methotrexate if they have stable LFTs. Hence, you shouldn't worry about using any of the other drugs we're talking about here, including biologics. Um, and is it true, is this all true in seronegative RA or not? Her lecture did not deal with seronegative RA. All the data she showed did include patients who had seronegative RA. So all this data does apply to seronegative patients. I was the one who talked about seronegative RA and that was last year where there is an advantage to seronegative RAs not getting certain drugs or maybe more importantly, seropositive RAs maybe preferentially getting either rituxan or a JAK inhibitor. So let's move on to our um, next presentation. This is a presentation um, by Elena Mayasadova from the Mayo Clinic, where she discusses something that's becoming increasingly important, and that is multimorbidity in RA. This is gonna be a bigger issue. Elena's from the Mayo Clinic. She and Krausen and others have really done all the recent research on this. Let's jump into what she has to show. Epidemiology of multimorbidity is a growing area of research. Uh, a lot in that area was done by uh, the group from Nebraska, led, from, uh, led by Bryant England. They uh, used market scan database, and for example, in this study, they found that uh, over 50% of patients have multimorbidity. Uh, multimorbidity uh, is twofold more prevalent in patients with rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to uh, general population. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis have higher number of chronic conditions than general population. Most overrepresented conditions that they found were ILD, fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, and you would say, wait, this, these are all conditions related to rheumatoid arthritis, so it's not surprising that they are, um, the number is higher in RA. But uh, the researchers actually have done the analysis of excluding these RA-related comorbidities, and um, so the upper 
upper graph represents um, number of morbidities overall in RA and the comparison population. And here they excluded the RA-related morbidities and uh, the numbers are still higher in RA. Uh, so the next important finding from this study is that the heightened burden of morbidity starts early in the disease uh, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and frequently precedes the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. And then it accelerates faster in terms of accumulation in RA as opposed to non-RA um, population. Uh, so there's some of that funneling, um, sorry, some of the funneling of the difference in morbidities and a growing excess in risk of having a more morbidities in general in RA as compared to non-RA. So this is important to recognize. And uh, this study comes from our group uh, using Olmsted County, Minnesota population and our population-based cohorts of RA um, patients and patients without rheumatoid arthritis who were followed for extended period of time. We uh, detected that incident multimorbidity state is 40% more likely to develop in patients with rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to non-RA population. Interestingly, we found that at onset of RA, um, seronegative patients tend to have more morbidities, and that can be because they are evaluated for differential diagnosis slightly more, but they are not more likely to develop uh, morbidities or accumulate morbidities faster later on as opposed to seropositive. Also, our study and uh, important finding from this one is that multimorbidity is dis disproportionately higher in younger age group. And that's important to keep in mind. Um, if you have a younger patient with rheumatoid arthritis, make sure to uh, screen for morbidities and define whether or not they are multimorbid. How about role of multimorbidity in outcomes in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? So this study, uh, Nurses Health Study uh, database, uh, they used weighted multimorbidity index, and again, similar to uh, previous studies, you see how there is a gap in the number of uh, morbidities between RA and non-RA population. Important findings from the study are that uh, they found that multimorbidity contributes to excess mortality. And interestingly, when they accounted for multimorbidity in their analysis, um, excess mortality, especially cardiovascular mortality, less so uh, total mortality, uh, decrease, the excess and risk decrease, the, uh, suggesting that multimorbidity contributes significantly to um, uh, overall and cost-specific mortality. This was not as much the case with respiratory mortality potentially due to disease impact, rheumatoid arthritis disease impact, and some environmental factors potentially. Other studies, uh, including the study using UK Biobank, also analyzed the role of multimorbidity on outcomes. And so similarly, they found threefold increase in all-cause mortality and major adverse cardiac events in patients with multimorbidity and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, among the comorbidities, and by the way, of course, common things are common, so the most common uh, comorbidities in multimorbidity in both RA and general population would be hypertension, diabetes, and such. Uh, but among the comorbidities, osteoporosis, they found, uh, was associated significantly and was somewhat driving this association with overall mortality and major adverse cardiac event. Uh, they didn't uh, have analysis for association with glucocorticoids, which could have uh, confounding, uh, confounded this finding. How about other outcomes? So uh, fatigue is a very uh, patient-important outcome and something that we hear from patients a lot. So this Comedra cohort study 
evaluated the role of multimorbidity in, in, in its role in severe fatigue. They found that multimorbidity overall, and particularly morbidities such as obesity, anxiety, and depression were associated independently in their analysis with severe fatigue. In our cohort in Olmsted County, we also found that having each additional comorbidity increases the index of uh, fatigue, uh, Bristol rheumatoid arthritis fatigue uh, risk score, uh, by at least two points, and then having more comorbidities has more impact. So it's important to um, think about it when you consider patients um, who complain of fatigue and uh, think about uh, their multimorbidity status. How about functional disability, another patient important outcome? Majority of studies agree that uh, multimorbidity contributes to functional disability, and this is one of the earlier studies by, by uh, Helga Rodner et al., who showed that even in patients in remission, that's shown in this green line, growing number of um, comorbidities and higher Charlson co comorbidity index was associated with increased health assessment questionnaire score, and certainly uh, the impact was even higher when patient was not in remission. In our cohort in Olmsted County, we found that uh, multimorbidity does not have differential impact on uh, functional disability between RA and non-RA population, and it's not uh, one of the major drivers of converting from no functional disability to functional disability, suggesting that RA itself also plays an import important role. Another important topic is uh, the role of multimorbidity in uh, treatment um, outcomes. So um, this study uh, was a cross-sectional study enrolling patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, they found that increased multimorbidity count was associated with lower odds of uh, biologics, uh, biologic DMAR use and specifically TNF inhibitor use. So there is the question whether, why is it happening, whether uh, patients are less likely to be started on their medications, whether they are less likely to be adherent uh, or tolerant of their medications, and whether or not patients with RA and multimorbidity are undertreated. There were several subsequent studies to address this question. Uh, this study using RISE registry um, showed that multimorbidity was, in fact, not associated with a new uh, DMARD initiation in active rheumatoid arthritis, meaning that multimorbid patients were not less likely to be started on new DMARD, as opposed to those without multimorbidity. But it was associated with lower odds of achieving treatment targets, and this was uh, somewhat dose-dependent, so the growing number of multimorbidities showed uh, higher impact. This uh, study from BRASS registry uh, showed that uh, patients, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, each comorbidity contributes to 30% lower likelihood of remission as opposed to no um, uh, comorbidity. They matched patients with rheumatoid arthritis uh, depending on the number of morbidities, and here uh, the groups are one, two, and three, and more morbidities uh, with non-RA population, and uh, compared remission and low disease activity states. And you can see how these uh, gray uh, bars, RA only, are uh, higher in terms of levels, uh, number of patients in remission and LDA as opposed to uh, RA with multimorbidity. They also found that each comorbidity decreases the odds of being on the same initiated DMARD after one year. So this is a new uh, finding and uh, important finding in terms of uh, medication Persi uh, uh, survival in these patients. 
next study using RAMS database um, showed that uh, multimorbidity, and specifically having over two comorbidities as opposed to no comorbidities, was associated with um, non-adherence to methotrexate. There were other studies uh, suggesting similar findings for TNF persistence. This prospective study in Belgium, which was a pragmatic two-year trial, showed that patients uh, who were treated to target and were on combination treatment and who had at least one comorbidity as opposed to no comorbidity were, uh, had lower odds of achieving uh, DAS28 remission. So certainly having comorbidity or state of multimorbidity puts patients at higher risk of um, being less uh, successful in terms of treatment, and that can be for multiple reasons, um, as I mentioned, non-adherence and um, uh, potentially uh, less tolerance uh, to medications. All right, thank you, Elena. In very interesting. This multimorbidity issue is going to come up over and over, and it's you know it is that past medical history section of the chart that you look at um, and that you're comfortable with. But the question is, what are you doing about it, and what's it doing to you and your treatment? Again, the synopsis of what she just said is that um, one, you need to worry about multimorbidity at a younger age, right? You expect multimorbidity in someone who's 70, but the fact is RA in the young have more multimorbidity. And then if you have multimorbidity, you're more likely to have higher death rates, um, worse disease activity, poorer function, less likely to achieve remission. You know, And I think that this is, uh, these are big concerns. This basically means these patients are harder to treat. Now, um, Carter Thorne asked the question, is multimorbidity contributing to polypharmacy? And does polypharmacy drive non-adherence and non-adherence make them worse? You know, it's a nice way of connecting the dots that you don't know to be true. And while she did show us the data from the Mayo saying, or from whatever cohort that was, it said that you were less likely to take methotrexate if you were uh, and multimorbidity. There's other studies that show that adherence is better in people with more complex disease and comorbidities in RA patients. So um, I'm not sure that you can make that jump from multimorbidity to polypharmacy. That's, that's certain, but polypharmacy being the driver to non-adherence, not, not necessarily true. The bottom line is that these patients are harder to treat take more education and more effort. And we'll get into other questions about what should you really be treating them with um, when they are this kind of a bad patient. Um, let's end our session with a very provocative um, presentation by uh, Karen Kostenbatter from um, Harvard. Uh, we asked her to give the, to the easy talk on prevention of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, as you know, she had a plenary session uh, talk on vitamin D that she'll end this particular session with. So I've taken two different excerpts of her talk and put those together. And she's going to talk about basically the risk of um, rheumatoid arthritis and maybe how to prevent it. So this is an epidemiologist view of how genes and the environment interact in RA pathogenesis. So you have your genes that you inherit from your parents and you have whatever assortment of genes for whatever risk of chronic disease you inherit. And then you have many different environmental exposures during your lifetime 
starts in utero. And then during my career, we've studied a lot of these, and they are risk factors for RA, the ones up here, cigarette smoke and sex hormones, viruses, air pollution, silica. Some of these may go back and cause epigenetic changes to the genes and alter the way the genes are expressed. And then in some unfortunate people who have kind of the wrong combination of RA risk genes and RA risk factor environmental exposures, they may develop some early immune dysregulation and subclinical disease with upregulation of inflammatory cytokines and autoantibodies. And then a few of these people will probably go on to develop clinical RA as well. And an expanded view of this is that you have your genetic risk in the early phase, a percentage of people go on to phase two with asymptomatic autoimmunity and inflammation, another percent go on to early symptoms, and then a percent to uh, the you know, final phase of meeting classification criteria or meeting diagnosis. We don't know exactly how what the proportions of these people are, and we don't know what proportion may you know, go the other way and remit or not progress. And along the way, as I said, you have your, your genetic um, risk at first, and then some benign autoantibodies and cytokines and chemokines may develop, and then later, more pathogenic autoantibodies, maybe. Um, there are environmental exposures all along the way. Epigenetic changes could happen all along the way. And then when we talk about risk prediction or prevention, we can talk about it from you know phase one, phase two, or phase three. So first about um, RA risk genes, the number of risk genes is fast exp expanding due to gen genome-wide association studies, GWAS. Here I've said there are 124 significant loci and 35 novel loci, and that number just continues to grow. Most of these uh, big GWAS studies were done in European or Asian ancestry populations, and we directly need large studies in more diverse populations. Um, and a lot of the risk is still associated with HLA genes. Uh, a lot of these more recently discovered risk genes have small odds ratios. But now with these big international genetics consortiums, we can detect even these small increased or decreased odds ratios. So the first case that I'll give you today is of that of a 58-year-old man who presents for evaluation of hand arthralgias worsening for the past year. He's had no synovitis on exam, but he is tender across MCP 2, 3, and 4 bilaterally. And he admits to more fatigue, but it's been a really stressful time. Of course, it's been stressful for everyone. Uh, and he's not sleeping well. He is stiff in the morning up to 45 minutes. Uh, he's been taking Tylenol with only short-term relief. And nothing else on review systems that you uncover. So the question for you is, is this new onset RA? And what can you do to prevent RA in this gentleman? So genetics can help to diagnose uh, um, RA earlier among those presenting with synovitis. This gentleman had only had arthralgias, not clear synovitis. But in a past study that we did um, here at the Brigham, we identified uh, a lot of people who the physician that wasn't sure uh, what kind of inflammatory arthritis they might be developing. They had some synovitis, but they um, didn't really know what they were developing. So they took their gen genotype information. They also happened to have uh, their blood collected, and so we could do genotyping on them. Um, and uh, they had the synovitis. And then uh, Rachel Canevo and uh, Shomaro Chaudhry worked on what they called GPROB, which was taking um, genome-wide association scan data and developing polygenic risk scores for each of these conditions, um, five different kinds of inflammatory arthritis, RAs in there, lupus, um, 
uh, spondyloarthropathy, psoriatic arthropathy, and gout, and then running the patients through this GPROB computer to see where their genes lined up. And so this patient X would be more of a lupus phenotype, and patient Y more of a spondyloarthropathy, and patient uh, Z more of gout. And so after they did this, they found that the initial diagnosis by the rheumatologist was only 35% correct for the ultimate diagnosis, and it improved to 51% after throwing um, you know, in the gene, gene, genetic information. So a little bit of improved classification and predicting earlier whether the patient's going to develop rheumatoid arthritis. But there are many other biomarkers beyond genetics that we use for accurately predicting uh, who's at risk for RA. And these are clinical biomarkers that you use all the time, anti-CCP or ACPA, rheumatoid factor, C-reactive protein, erythrocyte uh, sedimentation rate, ESR, and then imaging biomarkers, ultrasound and MRI, and then a load of research um, potential biomarkers and more coming, autoantibodies that find specificity to the ACPAs or glycosylated ACPAs, uh, anti-CARB-P, anti-PAD. Uh, there are epigenetic changes that can now be identified that maybe give us clues to risk for RA. Uh, different inflammatory markers and metabolomics and lipidomics, matrix metallophotism, adipokines, single cell, immunophenotyping is really exciting. And I could go on, um, and there are studies every day about new biomarkers that may help us hone our, our risk prediction, as well as shed a lot of light into RA pathogenesis. And this is a past study from the Nurses' Health Study, where we have um, looked at these fine specificity of kind of novel ACPAs and a number of ACPAs. And here, working from left to right, these are the women who later developed RA compared to controls who didn't. And their blood samples were collected up to 14 to 17 years prior to their onset of RA compared to controls. The cases there, over time, have this increase and the steady increase. And then from about six to eight years, it really goes up of the number of different ACPAs that are positive versus the controls stay down here in this, in this low range. So this is evidence of epitope spreading and increased numbers of aquas preceding the diagnosis here at time zero uh, of rheumatoid arthritis. And there are many past studies um, of anti-CCP or aqua predicting RA. It really is one of the strongest predictors. There are studies from healthy blood donors showing that having rheumatoid factor and CCP, 69% of those patients developed RA within five years. In uh, another healthy population of people visiting a, a health fair, if they had uh, CCP greater than two times the upper limit of normal, 70% developed RA within three years. In RA family members, this is even higher. So if you're CCP positive, 61% developed RA within five years. And the hazard ratio was 207 uh, versus those who are CCP negative. So that's, that's a pretty exciting uh, hazard ratio. Uh, we recently looked at the what's called the Healthy Lifestyle Risk, uh, no, Healthy Lifestyle Index Score, HLIS. And so the Healthy Lifestyle Index Score is an index of, of five healthy behaviors, which are here at the bottom, drinking alcohol in moderation, maintaining a healthy body weight, uh, distant or never smoking, so quit smoking and put it in the past or never smoke, uh, following a healthy diet, which is the alternative healthy eating index and being in the top 40% of that index, and having a healthy level of physical activity. And in the past, um, this very similar results have been found for things like cardiovascular disease and cancer. But here we show 
that in any order that you improve your lifestyle compared to these people here who have the most unhealthy lifestyle and don't have any of these healthy behaviors, improving your lifestyle by any one of these, um, one, two, three, four, five, your risk continues to go down. And the population attributable risk here for having any four out of five of the healthy behaviors was 37% of the risk of RA could be reduced. And here the hazard ratio for developing RA then gets down to just uh, 0.42, which is very exciting. And it's, a, and it's a strong public health message that uh, risk of RA can be decreased by following a healthy lifestyle. And RA, you know, joins uh, other, other diseases like cardiovascular disease, cancer, other things we know are associated with, um, with having a healthy lifestyle or decreased risk associated with high health lifestyle. And I just have to mention that a lot of these RA-related risk factors are also social determinants of health. And we see disparities and I mentioned that socioeconomic status is a risk factor, or low socioeconomic status is a risk factor for RA. And this is probably why, because when we think about the social determinants of health, food access, and quality, housing, and stress, which is associated with, with um, RA, and, and then there's job opportunities, medical literacy, work stability, um, depression, trauma, institutionalized racism, the neighborhood and built environment, air pollution, noise pollution, and then all these healthy behaviors, dietary quality, alcohol intake, and healthcare. They're all related to RA risk. So really, I, I think I'm arguing that we need to improve our society to improve uh, or to decrease risk of RA and decrease risk of many chronic diseases in the entire population. And maybe many of these exposures um, fan the flames of brewing RA by increasing chronic systemic inflammation. So we don't know exactly how the genes and the environment interact, but it could be that they interact a little bit non-specifically. That obesity, smoking, silica exposure, child abuse, and PTSD all have been related to increasing CRP and interleukins 6, IL-6, TNF-alpha, MCD-1 biomarkers of inflammation, whereas alcohol intake, interestingly, has been shown to decrease these. So maybe um, these really stoke the flames of some brewing RA and other chronic diseases. So briefly, I want to introduce uh, the results of the VITAL trial, which is vitamin D and omega-3 trial. It's a very large trial. It's actually we're continuing to follow these people now in open-label extension. There were 25,871 adults, men age 50 and over, and women age 55 and older. They were first randomized to vitamin D or 2,000 international units a day or placebo. And then in um, a two-by-two two factorial design, they were again randomized to um, omega-3 fatty acids or placebo within those arms. And participants were recruited from, across, from their residences across the United States. They were healthy individuals. Over 20% of the population was African-American. The primary outcomes of the initial trial when it was set up were for cancer and cardiovascular disease. And those results were um, published in the New England Journal um, in 2019 here. And then we were lucky to get um, actually two grants to study autoimmune disease outcomes in this population from the get-go, from their randomization. And overall, the confirmed incident autoimmune diseases, uh, to date, we've seen, um, this is in 5.3 years of randomized follow-up among those in the active group for vitamin D versus um, the placebo vitamin D 
there were fewer cases and the hazard ratio uh, did meet statistical significance. And then in the omega-3 fatty acid group, there were also fewer cases, but missed statistical significance. And we didn't see any interactions or synergy between the two supplements. We didn't see that taking both was better than taking just one. We did see an interaction of vitamin D with BMI and a stronger effect at low body mass index. And we saw um, an interaction of the omega-3 fatty acid intake with family history of autoimmune disease and a stronger effect there. Uh, the safety has been previously reported and we didn't see any significant differences in adverse effects in the intervention versus the placebo arms. And here, when we break it into the four factorial groups, remember it's a two by two factorial design, you can see that, um, and these are the confirmed incident um, uh, group, uh, autoimmune diseases and these are the confirmed improbable groups. It, all, both, all of the intervention groups, the three intervention groups, really reduced the risk of developing any autoimmune disease. There were many different autoimmune diseases over time, and this was true in the probable cases as well, and here they all hit significance. And these are the results that I really wanted to show you about incident RA, which looks very exciting for both vitamin D and the omega-3 fatty acid intervention, that the point estimates here, the hazard ratios, are really reduced for both interventions for the confirmed and confirmed improbable cases. Uh, the, the confidence intervals are wide with small numbers of cases. But as I said, we're continuing to follow these people and it is looking good, so stay tuned. So in summary, where are we with our efforts to prevent rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, as I've reviewed, we have identified many different genetic and environmental risk factors that are associated with risk, which is now allowing targeted intervention. And new biomarkers may be even better than ACLA, who knows? Uh, these interventions can be targeted at those with early symptoms and very high risk of developing um, RA, which we sometimes call imminent RA. They can be targeted at those with a strong family history or uh, genetics or modifiable risk factors, or they can be targeted at the general public, as was the VITAL trial. Um, okay, sorry, that got cut off. But you saw her summary. Um, I think Karen made a very compelling uh, case for um, risk reduction, almost being a societal responsibility driven by you, because you're the one with the knowledge. You're the one who has the ability to make interventions here that can be one of those five healthy lifestyle changes um, that when those were implemented in the nurse's health study led to a 58% reduction in developing RA down the line. That's really impressive. She was asked the question in the, um, in the live session uh, back in March, uh, knowing how hard it is to counsel patients on these matters. And um, you know, if you had to pick and choose, what's the one that you would um, lean into the most? And, um, and she said maybe the one that probably is most important out of the five, the five being um, diet, exercise, alcohol, smoking, um, uh, subscribing to room now. I don't really remember what the fifth one is. Um, the one that she would stress would be smoking. Smoking is most likely to have the greatest influence on curtailing the actual risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. Again, practically important because you see these patients, first degree relatives, seropositive, a few arthrologists, are they at risk? She showed, she showed you the numbers. If they're CCP positive, 
their risk is anywhere from three to 70% of developing RA. At that point, you're gonna one, make an appointment. No, you don't have RA today. Two, no, you don't belong, get, get DMARDs. Three, I'm making a follow-up appointment for you to come back in six months. And four, here are the risk reduction strategies that you need to imply, uh, to apply to your life. I think that um, those would all be um, really, really important. Um, Dr. Scopolita says she definitely needs to drink more alcohol. As you know, alcohol is anti-inflammatory and does actually treat and help prevent rheumatoid arthritis in a mild um, level of effect. But um, not all alcohol is bad. Um, and I can say that because I don't drink much alcohol at all. Um, let me give you a few questions that came in that we want to get, get around to in the five minutes we have remaining. What types of screening should be done in the clinic to assess for multimorbidity in patients? Uh, I think um, five-finger count, right? How many multimorbidities do you have? And uh, and again, the ones that, that Elena Masadova showed was ILD, OA, FM, osteoporosis, coronary artery disease, mental health, and pain syndromes led the way. And those are the ones that you should be, the more you have, the worse off you're going to be. Um, and the session, there were a number of questions about um, depression screening um, and what we should do in clinic to screen for depression. And Leica Barbosa who's on the call tonight said that we should be doing the, um, what was it, like the PHQ-9. It's a, about an eight question questionnaire and I, I would endorse that. If you use a questionnaire that you make the patient fill out or ask the patient to fill out before they come in the room, why not have one question on there? Is depression a problem for you now? And if it is, deal with it. If you're really interested, use this PHQ-9 or a modified Beck inventory scale that sort of thing. But I think these are things that really should be done because you know the importance of multimorbidity. You should screen for it. I'm not saying you need to treat it all, but it certainly should be um, encouraged. Um, a question came in, uh, do we have the best retention with IL-6 inhibitors in your practice? I don't think anybody can make that claim. I think methotrexate kicks everybody's butts on, on retention and all the other drugs, including our best new drugs, whether it's a JAK inhibitor or IL-6, TNF, it doesn't really matter. They seem to have the same 50% are no longer on the drug five years later or four years later. That seems to be a consistent story that's running around. Um, let's, uh, questions for Dr. Pope was, uh, you cycled through all the drugs, including all the biologic in the JAKs, and what else would you use? Um, and, and I think that, you know, maybe that's your in invitation. There, there's no right answer, as Janet show, showed you. There's no right answer in these situations, but there's always one or two or three drugs that you've never used. And should you try them all? Um, my treat, my diet, my lecture on refractory RA says you don't need to try them all. You need to consider wrong drug, wrong diagnosis, wrong patient. You know, these are things that you need to consider um, and look for structural disease and health traits and things like that. Um, questions came in about, do you use Anakinra and or why would you? And yeah, Anakinra works. Anakinra has a, all the other drugs are showing a 50 to 60% ACR20 response rate. Anakinra consistently showed a 42%, which was 20% above placebo. Anakinra works, um, but most of us haven't used it and, or scoff at it. It is a drug that I've used with great success in RA. Does it have the durability of a TNF? Not in my experience, but it does definitely work. Um, 
big question uh, keeps coming up about the current box warning. It's not really a black box anymore. It's a box warning uh, for JAK inhibitors. And does that influence current prescribing? It depends on whether you're a big user of JAK inhibitors prior to the box warning. If you were, there's little effect on your prescribing because you understand the data. If you haven't used JAK inhibitors, now you're using that as a, as a warning, as a reason to not use JAK inhibitors. Again, I wanna remind you the results of the oral surveillance 1133 study said high risk patients maybe shouldn't get JAK inhibitors. Um, certainly you got to use a TNF inhibitor before you use a JAK inhibitor in anybody, um, but that patients with cardiovascular risk or VTE, you might wanna use other drugs. But if you look at the data closely, the data says a, a few important things. The people who are at highest risk here are age 65 and higher with a prior MI and who were smokers. So of all the people who get JAK inhibitors in your practice, what percentage of those meet that profile? It's very few, is it not? Again, I worry about patients with prior history of VTE. Yeah, I'm gonna use another drug than a JAK inhibitor. If they, this news comes out and they're already on a JAK inhibitor and doing well and taking it for two years, I'm not stopping it. They've already passed the, uh, the stress test, the litmus test, on whether they're gonna get a VTE on a JAK inhibitor. So I think you have to keep these things in mind. Um, and another question came up was, do you really believe that the JAK is worse than the TNF inhibitors it was compared to in those studies? Or is it the fact that the TNF inhibitors were better? And that's actually true and probably is the truth in my opinion meaning that when compared to either adalimumab or etanercept, adalimumab or etanercept have been shown to lower cardiovascular risk. They've been shown to actually lower lymphoma risk. And the cancers that we're seeing in these studies were lymphoma, leukemia, and non-melanoma skin cancer. So um, I, I do think that Umira looked, uh, the TNF inhibitors look better than the JAKs, and that's why the JAKs take the hit. But that's not, that's only one interpretation of the data. We had a few questions about whether or not we should use one UPA over baricitinib over tofacitinib, and it doesn't really matter. While the companies will try to say their drug, their particular JAK inhibitor is better because of how selective it is or mechanism of action or how many times a day or God knows what, what else, it doesn't really matter because they all seem to have the same efficacy. They all seem to have the same um, risk of side effects. Um, would you ever consider combining a biologic? Most people would not. I wouldn't recommend it. I think we need to see the more studies on it. And currently the FDA uh, argues against it. As we talked before in prior Tuesday night rheumatology sessions that um, there are studies going on about combining biologics in psoriatic arthritis um, and also in Crohn's disease. I'd like to see those studies before I start being um, aggressive and I'm already aggressive in managing RA, I think we've got, um, well, we actually have no more time. So I think that's it for the questions. I wanna thank Pfizer for sponsoring this uh, program. Um, I wanna remind you that we have two more programs. Let me show you the slides uh, of, of what's coming up. Um, next week, um, we have a session that's entitled uh, Psoriasis for the Rheumatologist. And we have lectures from three dermatologists, three world-class uh, psoriatic experts, one of whom actually, Joe Marola, is a rheumatologist and a dermatologist, advances in PSA therapy, case management, 
uh, and co-management. We're going to discuss that next Tuesday uh, on Tuesday Night Rheumatology. And then a week later, we're going to have what's called Hot Topics. We're going to talk about JIA transition, a lot about pain and central sensitization. Those two sessions, the next two weeks, are actually sponsored by Janssen. So thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends to watch Tuesday Night Rheumatology next Tuesday, or they can watch the live stream on our YouTube channel, Twitter, uh, Facebook, or LinkedIn. That's it, folks. Have a great night and a great week. Take care.